He literally told me that his goal is to do a billion dollar deal. What's up, Jammies? Welcome back to Seller Jams, where we talk to Amazon sellers, investors, traders, and just general cool people in the space. Today, we're talking to Corin Woodmass, a friend of mine. He's been a friend for a year now, at least a couple months, probably almost a year. I know we talked back when I was in China for the first time about my own brand. What Corin does is he brokers deals in the e-commerce space and specifically for Amazon businesses or e-commerce businesses with Amazon as their, their major channel. He's done a ton of these deals. He tends to do the bigger deals, uh, at least for the spaces, size, range. Uh, he does deals a million and up, basically. But he's targeting doing a billion dollar deal. I love Corin. I've literally never seen him not smile. He's a real chill dude. The type of guy you just want to hang out with. Uh, very down to earth. And I really had a lot of fun chatting with him. I think you guys are going to love it too. Let's roll. What's up, guys? Welcome back to Seller Jams. Today, we have my buddy and friend, Corin Woodmass. Corin basically brokers deals for e-commerce brands and specifically Amazon brands or businesses that have Amazon as a main channel. Uh, he's been doing this for a while now. He's seen more deals than 99.99% of the people in this industry, which gives him a very unique perspective on what affects the multiples that these businesses get, what's happening in the industry now, what type of bigger players are taking notice of this community and, and this, uh, this game. And he's also just a super freaking cool dude. Um, that's just genuine, awesome guy. So Corin, I, I probably butchered that, but do you want to give yourself a little introduction? <laughs> no, that's awesome. Thanks for having me on, Chris. Um, uh, likewise, that every time we we talk, we've said this a few times. Uh, we wish we were recording. So this is yeah, the first time we actually get exactly. to do that. This time we are. <laughs> yeah, this is perfect. So. Um, <laughs> Yeah, the only thing I would add to that, uh, thank you for the very kind uh, introduction there, is I'm the, the founder and managing partner at the FBABroker.com. And right now, to, for context, um, like you mentioned, we, we focus on e-commerce brands that have an Amazon channel. And right now, our registered buyer pool has just ticked over $1 billion in US US. D, um, so $1 billion, real dollars, uh, ready to deploy to acquire Amazon-based brands. So we were pretty excited once our registered buyer pool got to that. It could easily be two or three times larger than that. That's just the ones that have registered and let us know their um, their budget range, uh, if you can call it a budget range at, at that level. And most of them are looking for, for big deals. So yeah, it's a very exciting time to be in this industry and yeah, fire away, man. I could talk about this all day and I normally do. So <laughs> let me know what you want to talk about first. Awesome. Yeah, no, I mean, that's already, that's just such an indicator right there that something is changing. Because I remember like when I started uh, my brand a couple of years back, I don't remember any kind of serious like buying and selling organizations. They were like, website brokers who had kind of started to do like FBA on the side, but it was like, it was like the same kind of valuations that websites would get. And it was, 
it was based on like monthly revenue and it was they were being valued as websites hmm. like essentially whereas now i think it's more it really is being viewed as a business and there there's a lot more to it than just okay what's your foot traffic what's your um, I mean, I'm sure, yeah, obviously your, your net margin and your revenue matters, but there's, there's more to it that affects, you know, and it's a more complex deal than just selling a blog or something. Yeah, definitely. That's a great starting point, actually. When, when I launched the FBA broker, a couple of things happened um, to, to f- kind of guide me in that direction. I got some really good advice from a mutual friend of ours who uh, over beers in Barcelona said just just focus on this niche because I was looking at the online brokerage space and saying, how do I how do I stand out? How do I be unique in this space? And it, it was pretty clear because of my background um, and experience in e-commerce at Amazon that this is the natural fit um, for, for us to pursue. But then when I started looking deeper into this space, I started tracking all the public listings that I could find online. And the first um, time I did this, it took me about two months to track down every corner of the internet I could find and put a, a list together of all the listings that had an Amazon channel. And I started doing this uh, monthly. This was a couple months after I started. So uh, mid-2016 is when we started reporting on this. And I, I started sharing this with the community. And once people started seeing that there was um, some comparison available, it, it really helped. It helped us understand multiples in the market and how they've changed over time. And now we have almost two and a half, almost three years of um of data that we can lean upon and look for trends year wow. over year. And that really helps us in our business, not only coming up with multiples for what a business should sell for, should sell for um, but when we're actually in the deal process itself, the buyers lean on us for data about the market. I just had this request yesterday from a buyer on a, a deal that'll be worth about $3 million put in an LOI already. So we've, we've signed the deal, but they're asking for some more data on the market from us because we have the data. So that was um, really interesting. After, after doing that, a few years in, we did start to see the, the multiples change for um, Amazon-based brands. And for the most part, most brokers have switched. If they weren't before, some of them have actually switched now to being annual multiples, which, as you know, is what investors with real money, with seven, eight figures of capital, exactly. nine figures of capital, they're not looking at monthly. No one, no one, no serious investor looks at, at no, monthly. No, that's like website anything. flippers. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's so fascinating. And it makes so much sense. It's kind of cool because you get this like economics of scale and network effect starts to take play once you get to the scale that you've gotten to now. And I know from our conversations before, this is only day one for you. I remember your your big, hairy, audacious goal of that, uh, the big B deal. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, still, the first time we talked. <laughs> still working towards it. Yeah, that's that North Star, right? Absolutely. Uh, Corin wants to do a deal worth a billion dollars. That That is the... Uh, the the north star right now yeah well, once that's done what's going to be the next north star dude 10 billion um is that even possible <laughs> at that point it's like i don't yeah i i think there could be two ways to go um as another side priority of mine is to to get back to being on the buy side at some point so once i have this business to a point where it's we have a, a deal team which is what we're building now so 
a mm-hmm. lot of the other website brokers that are out there, or online brokers, are, are one person. So you deal with one person, or maybe you deal with a team, but the team that actually runs the deal is really low level. No one really has a lot of experience. Maybe there's one or two people on the team, but you're usually dealing with lower level people or assistants offshore or something like that. What we want to build is is a strong deal team with legit M&A experience. So we're moving more into the advisory um, advisory type firm as opposed to a brokerage and offering full Very. service. So we're, we're onboarding people, making sure that they're, they're positioning their business for the maximum profit possible when they go to sell. So work with them on exit planning and then all the way through the deal. So you don't just connect them with a buyer and then leave them to fend for themselves. We actually help make sure that the deal is exactly what they want. They understand where the deal is, bring in M&A attorneys that we work with that have experience, help them get through. And and our, our promise is to be there until you get your last dollar out of the deal. We're right there with you by your side. Wow. Okay. That And that's, well, I, I mean, that makes sense. You became, you become like kind of this whole ecosystem, like a financial and deal services ecosystem where you can mm. do the advisory stuff. You have the access to the data um, that both the buyers and the sellers need. You can help the sellers increase their multiples and the buyers select the best deals and know what type of multiples they should be looking for in different spaces. That's, I like that. That's sort of what, I mean, that's exactly the uh, strategy that we're taking inside judo too is is building an ecosystem for people to live on where like live in where every tool is, like gets data from every other tool or service and th- this network effect takes play and you end up increasing value like overall because people once they use you for something then they trust you and if, if they're successful then they trust you and then you know, you can help them with all kinds of other things. It's like, I forget what the stat is, but maybe you know it, but it's like many multiples easier to sell something to somebody who's already bought something from you than it is to, you know, a new customer. Oh, hundred percent. And, you know, that's why we, we now focus on, this is sounding like a commercial for us. I don't, I don't mean it. No, 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 it's no, no, (laughs) it's, it's no, it's, well, let me start poking holes then. (laughs) Well, I was just going to, before we do that, and by all means, feel free to uh, to ask as many questions as you want. But um, this all right, is kind let of me relevant. write down some, some pokes. Yeah. <laughs> I feel this is relevant. In the, in the seven and eight figure range, we're finding a lot more um, groups that have a ton of capital. So they're not buying one deal, they're buying multiple deals. So while we focus sell side at our, at our firm, we're actually dealing with the same buyers over and over again. So we, we actually find that we get more attention when we bring a deal to market because we we build we spend a lot of time building the relationship with those investors that will be buying again and again and again. And yeah. so like you're saying, it is easier once you've done a deal with with a firm. And what I'm actually noticing and talking to other colleagues that have done a, a lot more as in the way of transactions and larger deal sizes, what I'm noticing talking to them is the larger the deal gets, the more relationship is actually important and psychology. Um, I was dealing with wow. a an investor group, a private equity firm. They've raised over half a billion dollars in capital. They own a, a bunch of different in equity portfolio or, or com- debt. In in debt. Oh yep. wow. And uh, so that was a yeah, half a billion dollars in debt 
raised for their deals and as well as having a fund so they have lps as well they have a bunch of portfolio companies that they're running and we were we were working through a deal we didn't actually close with them we couldn't come to terms we we're very close 95 percent there we just couldn't get it across the line which which was fine you know not every deal happens but it, the most interesting part of that deal well there was a lot actually and we could dig into that if you want um one of the most interesting pieces of that puzzle was the main business development guy on the private equity firm had a psychology degree <laughs> and i thought that oh. was genius seriously <laughs> because it's all about relationships and psychology more so than the deal itself that is so intensely fascinating i think it, it reminds oh you know what i remember you and i talked about this i think either either wait were you the one that told me to read shoe dog yes okay awesome yes i read it and then, oh, and we already bonded about the um, about the Ken Langone book, right? Yep, capitalism. Yeah, uh, capitalism. I love capitalism. Yep, yep. Yes, <laughs> yeah. So it's then I went on this kick of reading all of these books of these like these um, like Wall Street takeover artists, like Carl nice. Icahn and uh, T Boone Pickens and Kurt Kerkorian. And it's funny because it was exactly like you said, like when I was reading some of these bios, it's nuts. Like with Carl Icahn, he was doing these deals, which it was like one deal and his firm would get out of it like 50 to like $100 million or they would actually take over the business. They would like, they buy up as many shares as they possibly could so that they could have enough voting power to like mess with the board like vote off or on board members and start basically exerting serious control. And then the board would like fight back by either trying to like pay them off to just say like, here, have like $20 million go away. Or they would, you know, try to negotiate something. And they, it was all what you just said, human psychology. They, there are these crazy stories about him like sleeping all day so that he could come into a meeting at, at like 4 p.m. and have energy all the way through like midnight through like a, a marathon negotiation session so that once everybody else was tired and their willpower was worn out and they were ready to just like sign paper just to like get out of the room, he would still have his willpower and still have his like his like resolve. And, he, and he's like well rested. He doesn't want to go home until 5 a.m. anyway because he slept all day. And these are like 50... $100, $200 million dollars on the line here. And it's and it's what you just said. It's human psychology. It's so crazy how the, the higher you get, the more that comes into play. That's next level stuff, isn't it? <laughs> That's really taking the fight to your opponent. I love it. It is, yeah. And I, I also, I forget which advisor was telling me about this, but I was, somebody was telling me about this whole world of like firms that, are designed specially to come into a board to help them like understand each other better and work better together. Like that board's hire to like better cooperate. And wow. it's again, it's like a psychology. Play. It's like, you know, you have to be able to work as a team or else how can you lead, you know, this company? Wow, that's great. 
anyway, dude, cool before niche. we before we get too deep into this stuff, um, I want everyone to hear your story. You like briefly went over it, saying that you were doing online brokering before you decided to go all in to FBA. But like, what led you to that? What was just give us the give us the corn woodmass story. Sure. I'll give you the the shortened condensed version that's more relevant to what we're talking about here. Fair enough. So um, about five and a half years ago, my wife and I decided to leave Australia. And the initial plan was to go to uh, take a month off and then go to the UK. Um, my wife had a, a work visa for the UK. And um, I was just going to, you know, work out what to do. I didn't have an online business at that point or, or anything. So um, about two weeks into our one month vacation in Vietnam, I started looking at, at ways to generate income without being in a location. So being, being online or consulting or something like that. I had a mm-hmm. decent amount of digital marketing experience and also um, somewhat of a finance background in uh, property management and asset management um, in prior years prior lifetime almost now. Um, so that was my that was my background. I actually met a guy from the UK, from London, at the pool at, at the hotel we were at in Vietnam and got talking to him. He had an e-commerce business. So I went and consulted for him once we got to London. I went over, caught up with him, uh, started working with him. Now, what I, what I realized working with that client as a consultant was if you don't own the business, you can't really move the needle much. And more importantly, if you don't control the shopping cart, the thing that actually rings the register that takes the money, there's very little chance that you can control a, a percentage stake. So I, I negotiated a performance payment and that was disputed. And I thought, okay, well, screw this. I'm going to do it myself. So I started building an e-commerce business um, at the same time. And while I was doing this, I was looking for ways to stay in the UK and stay in Europe because I only had a, a tourist visa, so I couldn't stay all year round. And um, I started looking at acquiring um, businesses. That was one of the ways to get a, a visa for the UK at the time. And I started looking really deep diving into this. I'm kind of, once I get a hold of an idea, I just, I can't let it go. I have to read same. everything on it. I've got to talk to everyone. Same. I get obsessed. Deep I'm, I'm exactly the same as you, dude. <laughs> yeah. So I started on this journey and uh, I saw that the multiples that, believe it or not, I had a client um, I had a hair salon in uh, back in Australia. I, at one point I had a business doing web design and I found it really easy to um, work with hair salons because the we almost had a template. We were stamping them out. I could sell them easily. It was it was a whole thing. What? One of those clients we did. Wow, that is yeah, really wild. We did um, what a niche digital marketing. Yeah, it was. <laughs> we did some digital marketing for one of the clients, so I knew how to move the needle on on bringing people into a, a hair salon of all things. So I started looking at hair salons for sale in in the UK, and I noticed the multiples were really low. Um, you know under 1x cash flow and I'm like what what's going on here why are they selling for so low wow. so I again digging in further and further um, the reason they were selling so low is a lot of them had 3 to 5 year lease terms that they needed to fulfill they had staff they had infrastructure so there was a lot more than just the cash flow on this business at the same time I started looking at because I was building an e-commerce business I started looking at um, 
online businesses and what they were selling for. And I read a report by Centurica. They're still out there. They still put out reports every year. And they mentioned back then that that was the first year they noticed compared to offline businesses, brick and mortar businesses, online businesses were starting to sell for a higher multiple than offline businesses because the buyer pool is bigger because there's no physical presence required. And a lot of the people that invest at at least the you know, six to low seven figure range. Some of these guys are executives. They're coming up to retirement age, or they they've had a windfall of some sort, and they just want to have location independence. So, I started looking at that space. Started investing. Um, I'd saved up quite a bit of money. We sold our house. We started um, investing some of that cash in online businesses. So we were using a a build, buy, grow, and sell approach to digital assets, basically. Um, so that all didn't work out perfectly. Some of those, you know, I, I felt the pain of Google updates, lost uh, half my income overnight. Oh. Um, at one point, that was pretty nice. Why? Were these like the, affiliate sites or? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So we had uh, You had the Acai Berry. You were the ones trying affiliate. to sell me Acai Berry supplements and telling me I'd look like Brad Pitt. <laughs> no, we didn't do the supplements. We always, interestingly, we always uh, lean towards physical products. So even okay, the, masks. the e-commerce business was, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I got it. I knew yeah. it. <laughs> That's excellent. Yeah. So, com- so comparison sites and the like, um, and yeah, half the income go gone overnight. The, the key point of that story is half not all. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. we were still able to to survive. It just, it was painful. And at that time, you know, it was still relatively new, the buying, building, selling uh, online businesses. So I had throughout the, the communities of traveling around the world, we went to, I think, 30 odd countries in the first year. We met a lot of people doing digital nomad things. I kind of shudder when I say that now, but um, of people running location independent businesses, traveling and working. And a lot of these guys was were starting like us ex-professionals with cash saying, well, how do I shortcut this? How do I go buy income instead of build from scratch? And can you, how do you value this? How do you um, assess these business? How do you prepare for sale if you've got an asset that you want to sell? I remember that very clearly the first um, consulting gig I had in the brokerage space was a friend of mine was looking at a website, an affiliate website for sale. Um, He said, can you take a look at this deal? I'll buy you lunch. (laughs) And I said, hell yes, because at the time I had no intention of becoming a broker. I I just wanted to do deals. And I said, sure, mate, let's go to lunch. Let's look at it. Um, It was a dog of a deal. I advised him not to buy it. He didn't which is great. So he saved his cash. He's now in real estate, but that's another story. <laughs> and all so, it cost him was the price of a fish taco? Yeah, buddy. <laughs> what a lucky duck. Dude, I'll take you out for fish tacos any day. <laughs> I'll take you off on that for sure. So yeah, and then um, I actually met another broker. Uh, this was all in Berlin over over summer a few years back, four years ago now, five years. Um, met another broker and I was actually talking to him about why why do you broker deals? Because he he was also investing in online businesses, building them out. Like, why do you why do you bother with this brokerage stuff? The real money's in the investing. And he said to me, deal flow. And I went <laughs> I went home and Googled deal flow. Um, so <laughs> that's the level of sophistication <laughs> I started with was I didn't know what he nice. I, I'd understood the concept of deal flow, but I didn't understand what he meant by saying for he did this for deal flow. 
So there was a yeah. distinction there I needed to dig into. And That's then very once meta. I, absolutely. Once I understood that it meant quite simply, you get to see all the fucking deal. Oh, I hope yeah. you can swear on this. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> when you yeah, can feel see free to swear. Awesome. <laughs> I'm an Aussie. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I'm from Jersey, so <laughs> oh, perfect. we can fucking bond on that. <laughs> I like it. Um, so yeah, that it, it means that you get to see all the deals, right? So good, bad, ugly. You get so much contrast by being on the front line of seeing deals. And that's when I realized the light bulb went off. I thought, okay, at some point, I'm going to probably head down this path. And fast forward, maybe six months after that, I started working with another brokerage, an online broker that did all sorts of deals. And I was in a unique position because they were in a place where I actually pitched them um, lead generation. And they said to me, well, we don't need help with leads. We need help qualifying the abundance of leads we already have. So I I did a deal with them to Ah. come in and work the leads they already had that they just didn't have the time or the manpower to to cover. So that that's what I was doing. Staying up all night. I was in Thailand at the time. I was working like stupid hours um, on the phone all the time with all types of people. But what I saw at that time was a really good uh, learning experience because I saw the demand once I did, once we started bringing Amazon-based businesses to market, the difference between trying to sell an affiliate business or an advertising-based business compared to selling physical products, people that, you know, they're retirees, they're, one of the first deals I did was actually to a retiree. She'd owned a, um, a chain of Mrs. Fields cookie stores, turned them around. So they were like in decline. She turned them around, sold them for a bunch of money. She was a, a real estate broker as well, but semi-retired. She wanted to buy an Amazon-based business because they're they're real products you can touch and feel, right? There's a different level of buyer. And then I also learned, I I learned this slowly myself with my own FBA business. We sold our e-commerce business, uh, started an Amazon brand. And I noticed this myself that the cash on cash return for inventory-based businesses, the inventory alone is really tough to beat elsewhere. You know, you don't get the mm. necessarily the compounding effect, but the cash on cash return is ridiculous. We were pocketing mm. 35% net after everything in oh, our that's, pocket. That's just great. on inventory. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So the, they're actually buying two um two return vehicles there. One is the the cash flow the business is generating, but the second is potentially they could get economies of scale through the the inventory itself or expand the product line. If the brand supports more expansion, they can get a better return on their on their capital. And you know yeah, the, that's the best what's happening with um what's his name? Richard from 101 Commerce? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like <laughs> so who was telling me the other day forget i think it was somebody who was on the podcast actually was basically said um oh no it was kevin it was kevin king from the illuminati mm-hmm. group the from the helium 10 guys um yep. i was speaking on on one of their private masterminds the other day and they basically kevin was like yeah that's what richard basically one of the top things he does is just buy these businesses and then immediately expand them internationally to other amazon markets like if they're only mm-hmm. in the u.s no more product development, no Walmart retail distribution, none of that. Like the first step, and I'm hearing this like secondhand, but first step, just bring them to the UK, bring them to Germany. Like same FBA, same rules, same platform, like simple as that. Just expand them to new markets and then boom, like you've already, you know, like you said, like 
the if if they've already got the logistics network and the operational framework, you know they're lose they're not losing much, to to, to and it's you know it's a very quick way to expand the business. So yeah, that absolutely totally makes sense. Yeah, RJ's team and his thesis are pretty pretty interesting. We've done a deal with them so far, and uh, the team is is strong. They're in Austin as well. I'm in Austin right now, and uh, yeah, they're good guys. Right. Oh man, Austin is such a cool place. Talk about fish tacos. Mm. <laughs> I love this one truck called I think Veracruz. Veracruz. I'm writing this down. <laughs> I think that's what it's called. It's got literally my favorite fish tacos in the whole city. I go there every Excellent. time I come back to Austin. Awesome. I've written it down. I'm going to go check it out, mate. Thanks for the recommendation. <laughs> I hope I have the name right. I'm going to have to look it up on Google Maps and then WhatsApp you later to make sure I got that right. But Perfect. No, dude, that is such a fascinating... Yeah, okay. So then, yeah, pick it up from there. So mm-hmm. you start to find out through yeah, being on the phone all huge, day. Yeah, there's just big, big money by demand. Um, looking for inventory-based businesses. And for a few reasons, I decided to leave the brokerage I was working at. Um, no hard feelings, still still talk to the guys, still, still friends. Um, and I didn't do it immediately. I, I took some time. I was working on another... <laughs> I'll start again. I was working on another project with another friend. And I just... I was selling... Um, I was selling services that were low priced and I just missed the buzz of doing big deals. And I kind of jokingly say to people, once you start deal making, it's like cocaine. You just need more. It's like, it's fun to start. Sitting in the center of the deal is a fun place to be. Yeah. It's, it's horrible. Like it can be the most gut wrenching, um, emotional roller coaster. You're dealing with, crazy emotions on both the buy and the sell side and we're sell side so we we focus mostly on the the seller but you know where the in between you know you get beat up being in the middle but there's something about getting a deal closed that or seeing seeing that opportunity so going back to deal flow you see that opportunity and you say hey this is so different to anything else mm-hmm. buyers are going to love this and then you get it prepared for sale you dig through it take it to market you start seeing the feedback from from buyers and you know sometimes it's different to what we're expecting sometimes the market changes but then when those things just line up and you're getting you know, you've talked about your client getting a multi-million dollar exit it's going to be life-changing for them and then you actually see those offers come in you see the the LOI signed you see the money go into escrow you've got you know the transfer happening and that Ooh. the payout happens like there's some there's just some energy around that that especially now where you know it's pretty cool to say we make our clients multimillionaires <laughs> they build the businesses but we make that exit happen so that's that's just that's my favorite thing <laughs> I love it so um, yeah I, I totally missed that so I started uh, after I mentioned talking to my friend and looking at the space I was like how do I get into this space and it, it was clear to me to to focus on one niche and then expand out. We've still not managed to expand out because the market we picked grew so fast in such a short period of time. So much capital has moved into this space. And the and, niche uh, that you, yeah. you're mentioning is F- Amazon FBA. Correct. Yes. Yeah, so okay, brand gotcha. selling via Amazon. Um, buyers are just lined up. Um, we have traditional funds, massive funds. I had a um, conversation with a, a guy from a billion dollar fund 
recently looking at this space, asking a lot of questions, had a, a sub sub fund of a the the parent fund is a hundred billion dollars. They are, they have one hundred million dollars, and they were able to go up to ten million on the first deal. Jesus, um, they were asking about this space. That hundred million search or the hundred million fund was earmarked for e-commerce as well, which was quite interesting. But yeah, there's just tons of these guys out there. And um, fortunately, because of our positioning with the reporting and the like, and um, fortunately building up a, a decent reputation, we're usually the first stop. Um, RJ, I was definitely one of the first calls <laughs> with RJ. Even, you know, we, we started talking before he even had the um, the concept in mind. He was like wow. uh, looking to buy one on his own. And we started talking and then he's like, you know what, I, maybe I could do a, a fund. Maybe I could go buy a hundred oh, of I these. Didn't know the, that. He was running the numbers, right? We, we had multiple calls back in the day, which is awesome. Um, the first time I met RJ, he hugged me, which was kind of cool. He's like, I got to hug you, man. <laughs> it was, it That's was funny because nice. when I talked he's to a- him, he didn't seem like a very huggy type of dude. <laughs> he's extremely like serious and to the point, and I mean, he seemed like a yeah. good dude, but um, he's he's intense. Yeah, he's intense. intense. He's, he's very intense. Yeah, he's very sharp. But yeah, once you uh, crack that layer, he's a cool guy. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's wild. So that dude. luckily, yeah. So luckily, getting into this space, we've we've grown with it, and now the the type of money looking at this space, like I mentioned at the top, the the money is getting larger and larger, but the these guys want big deals. They yeah. they look at a million dollar deal as tiny. Yeah, you know the. And you only telling do you, like your minimum deal size is like a million, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, these guys. Um, I was telling you earlier before we were recording. I was in New York earlier this week working on a deal, and the uh, the buyers there are looking for two and two to two and a half million in EBITDA plus. And they, they consider that a, a cash purchase. In EBITDA? <laughs> like, oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Oh, we use cash for this deal, you know? <laughs> it's nuts. Jeez. It's so that, so they're looking at, revenue-wise, they're looking at $10 million businesses and up. At least, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Gotcha. That is pretty wild because when I look at the distribution of, of businesses on Amazon, because we do this like for our own pricing so we can know what the distribution is like, it's still like if you're talking numbers out of the 5 million sellers on the marketplace, you know, there's somewhere around two and a half now are, are actively selling and more than half of them are doing, I think a lot more than half of them are doing less than a hundred thousand a year in revenue. And, uh, Hmm. so, and it's, it's a distribution that, that falls like pretty quickly. So, I mean, I'm curious, like, I, I know you don't do the smaller deals, but, It'd be really interesting to hear what is the different difference between a multiple that like a one hundred thousand dollar company can get versus a million dollar company versus a ten million dollar company mm. versus a hundred million dollar company. Yeah, that's a that's a great question actually. And we've been doing a lot of work. Um, we did a, a twenty seventeen annual report where we're compiling a twenty eighteen. Um, report right now on all the public sales that we've managed to track and confirm that sold, and we're seeing a you know an alarming trend. There's there's two trends that are really bothering me right now, um, and should should be concerning to e-commerce brands as well. Is the smaller deals so under a million dollars? The multiples, for the most part, everything else being equal, are actually softening and declining. Whoa! So wow! And the That's main reason for that is, it sounds like. Well, also, there's just so much on the market. 
Okay. There is so much options. You know, a yeah. week ago there was about 225 deals that we were we were looking we were tracking and that about 60% of them are under half a million dollars. So there's a lot of options when you're going out to buy a business. Yeah. That makes sense. Well, okay. So what's yeah. the trend on the other side of that barbell? Sure. So above a million what we're seeing is the multiples are, are strong. Uh, they can increase, but again, there's still a lot of competition. Um, there's still that just went under LOI two a uh, week ago from us. Um, we were looking at the competition on that deal, and it was about 60 listings that were in the same revenue, same list price range. Interesting. It's 60, six zero. So even a novice investor, and a novice investor isn't buying a $3 million deal, but um, even a novice investor can quickly see when they start deciding to buy Amazon-based brands, they can see 50, 60 deals in a couple weeks. Like it doesn't take long. You, know, you can, and then you can compare like dating. and even if you're new, yeah, exactly. It's super it's like speed dating. It's business like business Tinder. <laughs> yeah. Business Tinder. Absolutely. It is right now. Um, so that's, what's dragging the multiples above a million. You are a- attracting a different type of, of investor and different type of buyer. So, um, for the most part, they they could be used to paying higher multiples for more traditional, more established, diversified businesses. the The multiples are still soft compared to, you know, if you had a, if you're doing, let's say, ten million in revenue for round numbers, and all of that is coming from Amazon, or 95 percent is coming from Amazon, that would be valued very differently and viewed very differently by investors, even strategics. Um, if 50% or 60% of the income was off Amazon mm. and especially if that income was from a channel you control. So say it's your website that's generating that revenue, but not only the website, you've got subscription. So you have subscribers, oh yeah, recurring revenue. You have a sales funnel that you can literally acquire customers at X dollars. That's the holy grail. Um, you know, I don't know if you watch, you probably do, but I'm not sure if everyone on, on here uh, watches Shark Tank, but um, you often hear Mr. Wonderful talk about Kevin O'Leary saying, what's the cost to acquire a customer? That's all he wants to know mm-hmm. because he can put more money into that and get a better return and grow the business. So that's like the holy grail in, in e-commerce and product-based, any, any business really generating revenue. If you can pay for customers at a, at a profit, mind you, not just acquire for no profit, that's scalable. Yeah. And that's if you put a dollar in and a dollar 25 pops out, I'll do that all day. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, they're viewed very differently and, and loose multiples, let's say they're a, their own product brand. It's one product. Um, they have a, a suite of products that all serves a similar target market. So they're selling to mothers, they're selling to fitness guys that love working out, you know, that's their target market, their avatar. If those two businesses were somewhat the same, they had um, pr- somewhat proprietary products, not patented or anything, but there was something unique, different. They put some real time into the the design elements of the product to make it more durable, more user-friendly, more comfortable, whatever it is, right? So they've put some time and effort in, they have a brand, um, they're, they're selling products. Maybe they don't even need repeat purchase. Maybe there's some repeat purchase just for comparison. Mm-hmm. So let's say one was doing 100% of their revenue on Amazon. One was doing 50% through their own website. So the difference in multiple 
if they were making the same net profit, let's call it $2 million of free cash flow, SDE, okay. adjusted EBITDA, whatever you want to call it, at $2 million, right? The one with 100% Amazon dependency would probably sell, and I mean sell, not list, <laughs> and there's a difference mm-hmm. in list price and what you actually get. They would probably see in the vicinity of three to three and a half times the cash flow upfront in in the deal for the business, not all of that upfront. Whereas okay, so the it'd be six the, or seven million dollar deal. Correct. Yeah. Got it. And on the other side, you'd probably see three and a half to maybe even four and a half, maybe five, if they had a really solid, um, a really solid funnel with recurring revenue through their own website and it was 50, 60% of their revenue. And that was, you know, you could prove you could acquire customers. You could be up to a 5X in, in no time on that wow. business. So that's so the difference between a $6 million deal and a $10 million deal yeah. with just that one change in diversification of channels. Absolutely. Oh, that's drastic. That's yeah. a really hot tip for people who are, and I'm, I'm guessing that trend is consistent no matter the size of the deal, even if the Correct. change is like different. Okay. Got yeah. it. So that's, it wouldn't that's be really as dramatic at the, it wouldn't be as dramatic at the low end because you have somewhat more unsophisticated buyers at mm-hmm. the lower end, but at the higher end. And you know, that's not, that's really the beginning of what we call lower middle market. 5 million plus deal is a lower middle market. So 5 million to 50 million plus is lower middle market. So there you're dealing with more sophisticated investors that see the real value of that recurring revenue and revenue channels that you control is is key. And the reason yeah. they will pay so much more, it seems that's that's a big delta <laughs> in um, oh, yeah. and mo- like life-changing money to you as the seller. Um, the the main reason for that, if in case it's not obvious, it's really fucking hard to do. <laughs> that's why right. they'll pay a premium for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is really wild. So that's, I mean, that's one super hot tip with real numbers from somebody who actually sees the deals. This is not just talk. This is like real because you're walking the walk here. What? So what's another yeah. thing besides diversification of channels? Oh, and by the way, does that, would that same effect happen if you were um, expanding internationally? as well if you were diversified through different countries not the same level um, okay so, so it would have an effect but to a lesser degree yeah if, especially if it's just amazon so if it's amazon us and then amazon europe uk japan whatever um for the first first piece of that we rarely see 50 50 distribution of of revenue number one number two amazon is still the main sales channel so you definitely don't get the same boost because one, you don't control the customer. Two, you don't have direct, I can pay a dollar and get a dollar twenty-five, right? You you don't control that ecosystem. So that's that's one of the reasons why the multiple would be so much greater if you controlled that. Um, diversification is interesting, however, it can backfire. So if it's too low, I've I've actually seen this on deals where the buyers say, well, that's only 5% of revenue and I don't want to deal with the UK. I don't want to deal with that in the EU. So you can do whatever you want with that, but I'm just buying the US portion. We've actually closed the deal like that. (laughs) Wow, so they just like split the business. I don't even want that 
that shit. Yeah, if if it's so small, you don't see that if it's 30, 40, 50, 60% of the revenue, of course they want it then. But if it's tiny, I think that was even under five, actually, it might have been like two or three percent. Just not of worth revenue. The, the effort. Yeah, not worth the hassle. Why set up in, in the UK if you don't have to, right? So yeah, yeah that's literally what the buyer chose to do on that deal. Okay, so what else? What else is going to increase our multiples? Say, say somebody's listening to this right now who plans to build their business up to a five million dollar business, and they want to mm-hmm. do they want to do something now. They want to like they want to take actions now that will increase their multiple in a year, two years from now. What are the things yeah, that sure. they should be doing? I got a couple of things. So all relating to brand. So um, a lot of people that follow me or or on our email list are probably sick of hearing me talk about brand. It's it's literally the thing that investors are, are really looking for. And it's broken down into a few ways to make it actionable. I'll explain it this way. So um, a lot of people that got started on Amazon you know, four or five years ago when it was super easy, you could just um, look for what was selling, go source some products. You didn't even need to really put a label on it. You just called it XYZ, whatever, and it would start selling. No one, it was the Wild West. And somewhere along the lines, I'm not sure who, if I ever meet them, I will punch them in the face. Not really. (laughs) I've never heard Corin say this before, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) I've never heard Corin speak like this. I don't know what's come over him. (laughs) <laughs> it, it makes my job so difficult <laughs> i will ask them very pointed questions uh, as to why they did this put nicely. but somewhere along the line yeah somewhere along the line someone thought it would be a great idea to teach people that you need multiple brands so if you're starting a new product oh, you can yeah, do that it doesn't need about. to be related you can just start another brand in the pet space oh, and yeah. just have one I know pet product guys. yeah 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 so it you think it's a brand in quotes because it's called Dogs Barkery or whatever, but it's not a brand. It has one I'm product. I'm definitely going to start that company now. Dogs Barkery. <laughs> I think it exists. I, I've seen Barkery somewhere, maybe on the profit, I think. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I really like but it. That, it's kind of cute. That does that does zero for your value. If you have a yeah, disparate course. brand approach, you have these six, seven different air quote brands that aren't brands they're just different products and instead of having generic names you've just called them different things yeah you're not building an ecosystem you're not building like what we were saying earlier in this podcast where like everything feeds off one another and like you know five is more than five times one it's like you know five pieces is like equal to like 25 times one piece because they all feed off each other if they're all separate like that there's no cooperation there's no they're not influencing each other at all it's yeah i get it that makes sense yeah absolutely so that that's number one so if if you're in this position right now here's here's two two ways to deal with this i can guarantee that within the next six to 12 months if not already your business is potentially unsellable which is fine if if exiting the business isn't your goal then cool roll in the cash flow and and enjoy it right Here's two things you can do in, instead of that. You can look at which of those uh, air quote brands you actually care about and would like to expand and just focus on that customer avatar. Mm-hmm. Sell out the other inventory, just get rid of it. 
and focus, put all the cash back into that one main brand. If it happens to be the most profitable brand, that would be a smart move as well. But it, it would help if you actually gave a shit about this space because then you could go meet these people in person, figure out what else they're buying, etc. So double down on, on one main brand dealing with one customer avatar and reinvest all the profits in building out products for that target market. Very nice. So that way, at least you'll have a, a targeted approach, even if it's just on Amazon, right? You'll be ahead of someone with a random mix of products. The next problem I see, which is related to this, I see this all the time. People come to me and they say, I want to sell my business because I'm running low on cash flow. We start talking about their business and we get into it a little bit. And then they say, well, yeah, I've got this I've got this brand that's that's doing really well, it's highly profitable, but I've started this other brand that I, I really like this space and I like the margins and I like I want to do something unique over here. What they're actually doing is they're robbing their main cash cow mm. to fund a new project. And they want both they want it both ways. They oh, I need more cash to grow this business, or they're running out of inventory, right, on this main business. And they're funneling cash over to this new idea because they feel like, oh, I want to make my own product. You know, I want to make a difference in this space. Well, the best way to make a difference in anything is to have the cash to actually make a difference. So I would say put that on hold. If it's really that great, there's time. You don't need to rush to market because you're a genius and you've figured out something that no one else has figured out. I don't know how long it took um, Dyson to in the backyard to do his vacuum cleaner, but I know it was a long time. I'm thinking seven years, but whatever, you can look that up yourself later. Um, But what I'm saying is double down on the asset that's valuable. If you don't, if you, if you're done with this, you don't want to, that's not the thing, get it to a point where it's sellable. Mm -hmm. But the, the important thing here is to make it as profitable as possible in the right position as possible to take to market. Now you can sell that for five, six, seven, eight figures in cash. Now you can go do your other thing, but don't split the focus too early because you'll be cutting off the profit source that is actually valuable. Yeah. God. Yeah. I, those words ring all too true. All the, all the hits so <laughs> deeply home. Um, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I see it a lot. I mean, you were telling me some trends, like I think it was the very first time we chatted, or maybe it was the second time where... You're like you you hear the same story over and over again. Like I that there are people who um started in e-commerce and then started doing some kind of service for e-commerce sellers until they let their mm-hmm. own brand die and yes. then like either wanted to liquidate it or you know sell it or or whatever, but it was like too late. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And <laughs> and that's such a shame. I mean, it's not the and <laughs> um it it's not so I don't I don't want this to be taken the wrong way. Exiting a, a brand and a business is not always the best option. I I literally in some cases will say to someone, run the numbers and see for yourself, but in some instances, selling through inventory mm-hmm. at a profit or even just getting rid of the inventory could be easier, faster, and more profitable than selling or trying to sell the business. Yeah. And I, I can definitely see that because it's, I mean, it's similar to fundraising. I'm in this situation right now myself in a way where it's like, it's 
I mean, I would imagine I haven't been there, but it seems like it's a full-time job. Like, like we were saying before, if it's like dating, like you have to have your shit together. You have to have the right reporting. You have to get your financials buttoned up that haven't been, uh, because you haven't had to before. And you have to have all these meetings and you think that you had a good fit from a person that you have already had six meetings with, but then they back out at the last minute. And, you know, I'd imagine that all of that takes an enormous amount of time, effort and resources. Absolutely. And, you know, um, you, you can't really quantify that or feel that until you go through it. I literally just had a call with a, a client of ours that I'm calling, I think I mentioned this to you before, I've been talking about it all day with the team as well. Uh, we're calling it the 302-day European exit because it actually took 302 days from the time we got the offer until the time the seller got paid out. Wow. 302 days. Dude. That's not a quick flip. That and that's not the time he built the business. That's the time we actually got uh, yeah. an offer. Like that was that was one of the most difficult um, processes I've been through. And you know, one of the keys there was was communicating the whole time with everyone involved and making sure we were all working together. If there was an update, we shared it with everyone. We came back around. You know, we we got that deal done but it just took a long time. So people don't really talk. No one really talks about um, what it takes to get the deal done, what the deal structure really is. And oftentimes you can't really reveal that because you've got NDAs and all sorts of things signed and, and agreed to. Um, but the, the reality, the truth about exiting a business is often really more complex than you would you would expect. And you know, talking about psychology before, the, the emotional um, drag on you is someone's looking at something you've built from scratch oftentimes right you've, you've built this up it's your baby and people are going to say your baby's ugly and that's really hard to hear people yeah. take it personally you know like, oh no not, they sure do <laughs> and be the same with fundraising you know you're out there raising capital saying look how great this is and most i would say most investors most buyers looking at a business just won't agree with you and sometimes yeah. it's because they want a better deal. Sometimes they just, you know, it's not a fit for them, but um, they're people too. They have emotions, they have um, priorities that they're, they're dealing with. So it's, it's really important to keep, um, keep emotions out of communications as much as you can. Um, I'm guilty of this too. I'm not perfect, but that's one thing when you're going through any sort of deal making is keep your emotions separate. Um, definitely deal with that in your own time. But when you're communicating in the deal, you want to keep it as emotionless as possible. And um, I bet that's yeah, easier just, said than done. Oh man, it is. <laughs> I'm remembering some conversations I've had recently that, that weren't so uh, polite, but yeah, it's... Uh, well, as I've told you before, to Corn, I think you're your, your nature is very well suited to this, to what you do, because you, you know, from the first time you and I had our first conversation, I think you're really good at like putting people at ease and making people kind of let their guards down and, and relax. I don't know what it is, but you just have very chill vibes. So I'm sure that that helps kind of grease the wheels to, you know, make people loosen up a little bit and and help get the deal done. Yeah, I appreciate that, mate. I, I do 
I do what I can. I try and see it from everyone's angle, which I think is the is the main key and something that's hard to do if it's your own business you're selling because you're you're too close to it, right? Um, but yeah. I have the advantage of being the the guy in the middle, which sometimes isn't an advantage. <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah exactly. that's, that's at least from perspective. your perspective. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, Absolutely. dude, we're out of time here, so we we actually went over, but uh, that's because you had so many nuggets of wisdom to share there and. Yeah, I mean, this has been awesome chatting and and hanging with you again. I wish we got to do it in person in the city. We're just ships passing in the night there. But yeah. uh, but next time we'll for sure. Back. We'll be back. Absolutely. Yeah. Next Can't time wait. you're here, we're going to do that thing that I mentioned about uh, sushi and microphones. For sure. I'm in. <laughs> cool. All right, man. One last thing is you have to tell me a weird fact about yourself that I don't already know. Ooh, weird fact. That's yeah, a weird. good question really weird hmm wow i'm never stumped for a question like that <laughs> that's why i didn't prepare you for it i wanted to be spontaneous okay this is weird uh, well it's weird to me at least um i got my start in sales at three years old the first sale i can remember making was uh, I lived in New Zealand, so my dad's a Kiwi. Um, we were cool. living in New Zealand, and I knocked on this guy's door on a Saturday morning. He walks out. He would have been six foot four, face covered in tattoos, a married gentleman, he opens the door. I sell him a, a magazine because my parents were Jehovah's Witnesses. And the person I was with was not my parents uh, walking me around. It was a family friend that had taken me to this door she took two steps back when this guy opened the door i went through and just made the sale turned around walked back to the car like nothing happened she was telling my whole family about what i had done and how amazing it was the guy was awesome i remember this, <laughs> this very badass clearly. little three-year-old he's yeah. <laughs> awesome, dude. so and, maybe yeah. Maybe I was born a salesman. <laughs> I bet that, yeah, that one experience probably like subconsciously wired your brain to be fearless in any deal. It's like, man, I already <laughs> sold magazines to the dude with the face tattoos. You think this deal is going to, you know, get to me? No way. <laughs> there you go. That's about as weird as I can remember. That's awesome, dude. I think three-year-olds are probably the best salespeople ever because it's so hard to say no to them because they're so damn oh, cute. Oh, for sure. And they don't give up. Right, you, yeah, you don't exactly. Give up when you're a kid, yeah, <laughs> it's only when you get old and bitter that you are uh, you get used to hearing uh, no one. It. Yeah, it's so true. <laughs> yeah, well, let's keep that childish wonder alive in both of us, shall we? Absolutely, buddy. You got it. All right, <laughs> this brother. It's been so much fun, man. Seriously, I know. I can't. I mean, I'm. If you are interested in it, um, I'm down to do it again with the the tables turned, and we'll uh, we'll have equal amount of fun plus some and hopefully yeah, with fish tacos. No, yeah i'd love to do that that'd be awesome kicking all right brother have a good one cool thanks chris all right peace that's it folks hope you enjoyed my chat with corn woodmass and we really got into the meat and potatoes at the end there go back and listen to the part about the main three ways to add to the bottom line of the value of your business when you go to exit because that's crucial and it's important to start now not waiting until the time when you're actually ready 
to make the exit. You have to start preparing far beforehand. That was the one big thing that I learned from Corin. So that's all, folks. Enjoy your day and stay tuned for the next episode of Sella Jams. Bueno, bueno, bueno.